0: This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, Weekend Warriors of Michigan Politics and Government. We have our first guest on the line with us, and he is Burdette Loomis. He is an emeritus professor at the University of Kansas in Lawrence, Kansas. Welcome to the Political Insider, Professor Loomis. Well, it's very nice to be there
1: uh, with you, uh, and I look forward to chatting.
0: Yeah, look, uh, I probably should mention that our listeners here in Michigan are wondering, why am I talking to a professor in Kansas? but. There is a connection. Bear with me here just for a second. Uh, Kansas and Michigan are two states that have a Democratic governor and a Republican-controlled legislature. There are five other states that have the same thing, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Kentucky, and Louisiana. But uh, we've got Professor Loomis on because I want to ask him a couple of questions about how the Democratic governor, Laura Kelly, uh, is getting along with this Republican-controlled legislature in Kansas. Uh, how would you assess the situation over the last couple of years since she was elected? Well, what you got to
2: understand
1: about Kansas is that we, over the last 60 years, even though we are a very Republican state by a whole array of measures, We've elected more Democratic governors over the last 60 years than Republican governors, so this isn't an u- unusual situation for for us. Uh, we could talk about why that is so, but uh, most Democratic governors in the past um, have had their minorities in the in the legislature. But there have always been a large number uh, of moderate Republicans, Uh, and at the end of the day, a Democratic governor could work with a coalition of Democrats and moderate Republicans to get a lot of what he or she wanted. Now, that has changed over the last 10 or 15 years. And now Laura Kelly, who's a moderate Democrat by any standard, uh, confronts a— Republican legislature that is inalterably uh, far to the right. The leadership is far to the right. Uh, The rank and file are moderates have been pretty well drummed out in primary after primary. And so uh, her her task, uh, compared to former Governor Kathleen Sebelius, for example, is is much more difficult. Uh, And and honestly— Uh, Even though she's succeeded in getting some stuff through education spending, for example, uh, nothing on her real agenda, uh, if she wanted to get things, would even be seriously considered by by this legislature. So a lot of what she does uh, stuff by executive action. uh, or tries to fend off uh, Republican initiatives uh, with veto overrides. So um, it's it's a tough a tough road to hoe uh, for for Laura, and uh, uh, I, I think that the circumstances here are similar to a lot of uh, legislatures where far right Republicans uh, dominate the process.
0: Well, let me ask you um, about the legislature itself. Have they sent her legislation that she has vetoed, as you just indicated? Have they undertaken to override her vetoes? Uh, and if so, have they been successful?
1: Uh, most of the time they have. Uh, and the one notable exception uh, is uh, on one of these uh, uh uh, transgender sports bills where she prevailed in the Senate by, by a single vote. Uh, but on uh, we have a, a moderately restrictive uh, voting bill here that she vetoed and, and was overridden. In fact, our legislature uh, when takes a break and, and they had passed a bunch of legislation, she In the interim, she vetoed it. They came back in one day. I think they overrode maybe six or seven vetoes, were the only ones standing uh, being um, uh, the, the, the transgender sports. Now, a lot of these were um, not greatly significant bills, and on some spending bills, because we've Got a pretty good balance sheet. Uh, she has prevailed uh, on education funding, even on higher ed funding. Uh, so um, that's uh, that's something. The, the other thing, the, the, the one of the the 800-pound uh, gorillas lurking around the legislature is uh, that we have not expanded Medicaid. Uh, Kelly is very much for it. Um, We've had majorities in the legislature before in favor of it, but uh, either there's been a a veto with no override or procedural votes, Uh, certainly Kansans favor it. The legislature won't even talk about expanding Medicaid, which would greatly benefit us uh, fiscally uh, and obviously in in health terms. So, I mean, that might be the biggest issue outstanding The legislature won't even take it up.
0: Let me ask you about the elephant in the room, and that is the coronavirus, COVID-19. Over the last year, year and a half, I mean Kansas has obviously been afflicted to some extent by mm-hmm. the impact of the coronavirus. How has she been able to handle that and in a confrontation with the legislature on her executive powers in trying to do that oh
1: man this this is this has been a constant over the course of the uh, uh, the coronavirus over the last uh, sixteen months that uh, legislative leaders have tried to restrict the governor's uh, uh, powers in, in various ways, uh, and it's been a real uh, battle over executive power versus legislative uh, con- control. Uh, the most notable one has been uh, on, on a mask mandate. She issued an executive order uh Saying that uh, Kansas should wear masks, uh, but the, the legislature made it uh, not mandatory. You could have county exceptions. So out of 105 counties, uh, 15 counties t- uh, adopted the mask mandate. The biggest counties, uh, but uh, they have fought her to the nail on, on the mask mandate. Yes, uh, that you know that it, it's been a, a, a continuing
0: battle. What about so-called lockdowns of businesses? Um, you know,
1: they, they, they've ne- they, they've negotiated that out somewhat, somewhat better, but basically, uh, uh, there's a lot of variation uh, among counties, and uh, and again, that goes back to the battle between the legislature and, and then the governor. I think the governor would have liked to have had stricter statewide rules. But in some ways, in mean, Kansas is, is, you think of it as a rural state. We're a big state, uh sparse population. Uh, but much of our population is, is concentrated in suburban uh, Kansas City, Topeka, uh, uh, Wichita, uh, a couple of college towns like Lawrence. And so... Um, It's uh, I I think that the rural urban divide here is uh, is really, really substantial. So it's not just the governor versus the legislature, but there are very different political cultures from one place to another.
0: Is the Kansas Constitution and some of your laws written in such a way that the governor seems to have Unilateral power to do what she wants to do without any input from the legislature, or are there checks on her ability in the sense that she has to get permission from the legislature to do certain things that she wants to do?
1: Very, very much, very much the latter. Although I think uh, it's really come to the fore over this last 18 months. I, I don't think that. There were such big fights over this historically, but now uh, we have had. And so so the Constitution uh, does not empower the governor in in any kind of absolute way. And we have an institution in the legislature, uh, eight-person coordinating council made up of legislative leaders. And when the legislature is not in session, which is eight months a year, uh, The Legislative Coordinating Council uh, has a lot of checks on on the governor, her ability to use money, things of that nature. Right. So, no, she is continually checked by by this group.
0: Okay. Listen, I wish we could go on longer because there's so many more questions to ask. But you've done a great job of giving us an overview of the situation in Kansas. Thank you. Professor Burdett Loomis of the University of Kansas for being our guest. Thanks, Bill. Thanks very much. We'll be back in a minute with another guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MDN. Here's Bill. We have returned and we have on the line with us Samantha Schreiber with MERS- subscription newsletter in lansing that's michigan information research service samantha schreiber thanks for being our guest oh my gosh i'm so happy
3: to uh, finally be here at the the cool kids uh, table <laughs>
0: <laughs> well look uh, a lot went on this week in michigan politics in the state capitol uh just go through your checklist a little bit what what happened this week that's worth mentioning
3: Honestly, we have to zoom into the budget. I mean, how how could we absolutely not? Uh, So on Wednesday, the legislature passed the largest single year school aid fund ever to be passed in Michigan, and ever to even be introduced or discussed in Michigan, at least to my knowledge. Uh, So we're seeing about a 10% increase from what we've spent last year on the school aid. Uh, So, you know, we're talking about... uh... (laughs) Oh, gosh! I'm getting so excited about this. Just so many numbers here so, um basically, we're seeing about a one hundred and sixty eight point five million increase going toward preschool spending, a total of one hundred and fifty five million devoted to individual reading scholarships, uh two hundred and forty million for psychologists, nurses, and social workers in schools. However, we have to kind of stop here and say that the K-12 budget was the only one to make it out in time for the July 1st deadline, uh, which was definitely very critical because the majority of schools, their budgets start on July 1st. They've been demanding an early budget long before the COVID-19 pandemic. So definitely an extremely critical issue here. Uh, However, when it came to other budgets, I think we're definitely seeing quite a bit of division in the legislature of the Senate and the House not having that much time of being in the same room and working out these budgets to make sure that they're on the same playing field for what they want to get out with this unprecedented surplus of spending.
0: Yeah, it looks like uh, this is going to drag on for weeks, maybe even a few months. The fiscal year does not start until October 1st, so there's three months to go before supposedly the governor will sign this budget or, if not, uh, line item veto parts of it, and the legislature will have to respond to that. So time is ticking. Uh, How do you think this is going to go in the next few weeks?
3: And I think I think we should definitely prepare for the unexpected. I would say this week on Wednesday to be able to get such a massive K through Charles budget in the way that they did. I mean, I was definitely in the chamber covering that event with a lot of uncertainty and when it had finally come on an agreement I was like wow really I (laughs) I was expecting a lot of inevitables so I think for here we should just stay on the edge of our seat about what's going to happen I think when we look at the general public the governor is presenting this idea that she wants the spending to happen as fast as possible we need to pick up the speed Uh, and that essentially kind of looks like a democrat governor versus republican and legislature issue. However, you know, again, zooming into the Capitol, why aren't we seeing the same House and Senate leadership in the same room covering these budgets and presenting something out as fast as possible? Uh, But again, this is a -a once-in-a-lifetime spending that we're working with. How are we going to invest into once-in-a-lifetime projects? Uh, So I think that there's a lot of areas that any member of the legislature can a legislature can have a really big win on here.
0: Do you have any ideas as to why the Senate and House leadership, which is both Republican? I mean, the Republicans dominate each chamber. Why are they having trouble apparently agreeing uh, in a timely fashion on some of this stuff?
3: Mm -hmm. I would say from my personal observation, And again, I do apologize for the reiteration that I'm going to be dropping with the once-in-a-lifetime this, once-in-a-lifetime that. But I guess that's the 2020-2021 theme here. Uh, I really think it's just because there's so much money at hand, you know. I mean, when you're dealing with a 6.2% increase to Michigan's general and school funds, and not only that, but a massive federal surplus of money you know i think a lot of people want to be able to assign money and allocate it to a project that's going to make a public official look really good like i said a win for michigan a win politically uh however i think i just think that there's a lot of issues about how do we make sure that we're taking the time that we're not just wasting away this unprecedented amount of money
0: was anything else going on this week that you think was worth noting beside the budget?
3: Oh, gosh. I mean, how can I not mention the my shot to win Michigan's take on the Uh, You know, I think that's <laughs> definitely a very... <laughs> My shot to win. It's actually been my favorite program name so far this year. I absolutely love it. Um, but uh, I think I think something
2: <laughs>
3: I think it was actually said, though, that more than 90 percent of those, according to the Detroit Regional Chambers, a uh, recent polling that they did that they had released. I want to say earlier this month uh, uh, that more than 90 percent of those who are unvaccinated, had actually responded that doing some sort of vaccine like lottery wouldn't persuade them or motivate them to get the vaccine. So I think I'm kind of excited to see people walk the talk. Are they going to utilize this opportunity to get the vaccine? Uh, I think this morning it's actually been 500,000 people that have registered for the MyShot to win sweepstakes.
0: Wow. Well, let me ask you, what about people who signed up to get a vaccine, got a vaccine early before the vax 1000000 sweepstakes was announced? Are they cut out of this, or do they uh, have eligibility to win this, too? You know, I had
3: actually actually seen that kind of explained before. Uh, That is not something that I have immediately right in front of me of how it's going to kind of work. I believe that people do actually have the opportunity to apply for certain things. But again, don't (laughs) don't take my immediate word for it. I don't really feel comfortable with that answer. Uh, But again, I mean, that is going to be really interesting to see how many people are going to be kind of coming forward. Like, wait a second. I was excited to get my vaccine. Like, (laughs) let me try to get my dollars. Yeah. Uh, however, I think this is a very new program and that there is going to be a lot more information to come forward of how it's going to be executed.
0: Yeah, there could be a, a melee at the uh, jackpot winner's uh, site at some point down the road. Somebody will say, oh, wait a second here. I was cheated out of my winnings. I should have gotten this. I should have been eligible. I mean, it could happen. You ne- You never know. How about anything else? This week, anything else going on, or is it pretty much just a question of whether the legislature would be able to get the budget done by Thursday, July 1st? Uh, Was that pretty much the whole story?
3: I think for me, I've been very zoomed into the budget uh i i think that there's a lot of different conversations depending on what area want you want to look at um obviously this week I mean, this past weekend we had flooding in detroit detroit that was uniquely historic uh that a lot of homes were devastated by So I'm interesting to kind of see how the conversation on water infrastructure could possibly influence the budget. But obviously, you know, things move very fast. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So, So who knows what's to come?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Listen, you've done a great job of describing the excitement, if that's the word for it, over what went on with the budget, particularly the school aid portion, a record number of dollars flowing to K-12 public education in Michigan this week, but a lot remains to be done with the whole rest of the budget. Thank you, Samantha Schreiber of MERS New Letter for being our guest. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back, and we have on the line with us our friend Craig Thiel. He is research director for the Citizens Research Council. Welcome back to the Political Insider, Craig Thiel. Hey, thanks for having me again, Bill. Appreciate it. A lot of excitement, as usual, in the Michigan Capitol this week, particularly leading up to the Thursday, July 1st deadline. That the legislature two years ago passed a bill uh, signed by the governor saying we got to get a budget to the governor by July 1st every year, three months ahead of the start of the fiscal year 2021-22. Did they do that, Craig Field? Did they get that done? And if not, why not, in your opinion? And uh, what did get done, if anything?
4: Oh, big question. Let's just answer the first part, which is they got part of it done. I would say fractionally about a quarter of the budget got done if we look at just the raw amount of appropriations that were approved by the governor and are approved by the uh, the legislature and sent to the governor's desk. Um, the other three quarters of the budget is to be determined uh, sometime over the summer as the legislature hashes uh, its proposals out with the governor. The piece that did get done, Bill, is the, uh, the piece uh, that had a July 1 start date, which is school funding. So schools operate on a little different calendar than the state. They start their plan or their fiscal year on July 1. So this deadline we talked about and that was put in place was driven largely by local interests, schools, local governments that have to have our budgets in place July 1, and the legislature can't drag things out to October and beyond um, and and expect them to run their operations smoothly. So it was a well-intentioned deadline, um, but I think without any teeth in the deadline to force the legislature to do something like dock themselves pay or, you know, do something other uh, in the way of a punitive measure, there really was no incentive to get this work completely done by the July 1 deadline.
0: Yeah, this gives the governor three months to look at what the legislature has given her, whether she's going to sign everything just the way they sent it, whether she's going to line item veto part of it, which she's done in the past. Um, or move money around uh, that's to be determined as well. What did the school aid budget turn out like in your opinion? Was this a good school aid budget?
4: Well, uh, despite a lot of uh, you know squaring off and corners uh, leading up to the final product, the final product has what appears to be praises from all corners um, It is and been dubbed the largest and just a technical note, every year we have the largest school aid budget in <laughs> history because school funding has been going up every year. But yeah. this one is the largest, as as have been the past ones. But um, what's got people really excited about this budget is 25 years ago, the state set in course a mechanism to bring all school districts equal in terms of their per-pupil funding, something called the State Foundation Allowance, and when they put in place the school reforms, the plan was sometime in the future, we will be able to fund every kid at an equal amount, and so over time, they've been closing this gap between the districts that get the most money per district, per student, and those that get the lowest per-pupil amount, and over time, it's narrowed to the point where it was about four hundred dollars going into this budget year and given the um, sizable bumps in state revenues that have been coming out of each uh, revenue conference the last three iterations the last three times they've had these conferences um, there was enough money to, to to close that gap so the school community is uh, applauding a historic moment in, in closing this per-pupil funding gap. And that's real. That's the real story coming out of the, the school funding uh, budget.
0: Was this a one-time thing, or do you think that the legislature and the governor, or whoever the governors might be in the future, will be able to keep this going, keep this uh, equal per-pupil funding for every district yeah. in the state, or whether all of a sudden maybe three or four or five years from now Uh, the budget won't be so flush with cash, and they'll say, we're going to have to start making some distinctions here, and it'll start separating again between the high and low districts. Well, no, and this
4: has been a goal of the state, quite honestly. It wasn't the goal of the local districts to do this. So this has been a state, state goal, and they've been prudent in terms of moving towards equalized funding as opposed to, you know, promising a whole bunch in one year and then having to claw it back, you know, a couple of years down the line. There have been cuts uh, over time when we've hit, um, you know, um, potholes. But when those, you know, those financial challenges came around, the cuts were across the board. So the gap really never uh, changed. It was always there. Um in this case, if you do a per pupil cut, then everyone's going to get taken down and so i think uh I think we're pretty safe in terms of protecting this equal funding, whether or not that funding will get cut you know in the future because of economic challenges that that's a you know an unknown.
0: What about the rest of the budget? I mean, what about the flooding in Detroit, the collapse of the dams yeah. in the Midland area a year ago uh all this talk about now's the time to really attack our infrastructure needs here in Michigan. What do you see the legislature and the governor trying to do between now and October 1st in addressing that? Are, is there going to be extra money there that we wouldn't have expected a year ago or two years ago for that? All
4: huge lifts financially, Bill, that you, you mentioned, and, and I would just add on top of that, they have to come to agreement on the operating budget for next year, that three-quarters of the state budget I referred to, which is, you know, funding for universities and community colleges, for the corrections programs, for the operations of the state government itself. So they have to come to an agreement on that. And then they also have to come to an agreement on all those issues that you've illuminated, which in a lot of cases are one-time um, expenditures, you know, uh, repairs uh, having to do with flooding, infrastructure, and and I think what the legislature and the gov- uh, governor are scoping out is how to put to work the 6.5 billion of federal stimulus dollars that are going to be coming in to the state here, and that's a that's a separate uh, but parallel budget discussion that's going on in the capital along with you know, the the operating budget and getting that in place by October 1. So I think, you know, this summer it's going to be all about spend, plans to spend money in, in Lansing to prep things for uh, approval, budget approval um, in late
0: summer. We're talking to Craig Thiel, and he is research director of the Citizens Research Council. Craig, we have talked before on this program with you about th- the fact that the state is flush with cash right now. We know. We never expected that. We thought we were in financial trouble because of the coronavirus. Where do you see the state standing in its budget at the uh, start of the fiscal year Uh, and, let's say, early next year? Do you think there's going to be a big surplus that can be carried over to the next year? What do you think?
4: Right. Um, so, Bill, the um, the 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 economic forecasts in Michigan have changed uh, 180 degrees uh, relative to where we were last year at this time, and and that's shown in the um, the revenue forecasts that come out of the state uh, twice a year. Things were so volatile last year that they actually had three of those conferences because they were trying to get their finger on the pulse of this economy and and how it was reacting not just to the virus but to the federal stimulus that was um, kind of trying to buffer against, you know, the the impacts on households and businesses. And, um, you know, eventually what what we found out after three revenue conferences is that the federal efforts to keep the economy buoyant um, has really spurred State revenues to grow well beyond uh, baseline expectations. So um, the, the, that is all to say that we are looking at sizable surpluses in the state budget, uh, about 3.5 billion uh, per the, the the May conference, 3.5 billion across the uh, general fund and the school aid fund budget. So this is, these are massive surpluses that will be available in addition to all of the stimulus dollars that the feds have have sent to the state
0: yeah listen uh we could ask still more questions but Craig Thiel (laughs) research director for the citizens research council you've done a great job of explaining the situation as it stands right now and it looks a heck of a lot better than it did as you say a year ago Craig thank you for being our guest hey all anytime thanks Bill we'll be back in a minute with another guest This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are very fortunate to have on the line with us Representative William Sowerby, a Democrat of Clinton Township in Macomb County. He represents the 31st House District, and I believe that includes the cities of Fraser and Mount Clemens and a big chunk of Clinton Township. He is a longtime political figure, public official in that area. He was the treasurer of Clinton Township, I think, for 20 years. He was a county commissioner, and now he's a state representative. And he is the ranking Democrat, the minority vice chairman of the House Committee on Natural Resources and Outdoor Recreation. Representative Sowerby, thanks for being our guest.
2: Thank you for having me, Mr. Ballinger. It's a a pleasure being here.
0: Well, you have introduced bills, or a bill, to modify the Wolf Management Advisory Council and the Wildlife Commission to represent the viewpoints of wildlife scientists, conservationists, and Native American tribes. As I understand it, these bills do not remove seats from either board. Instead, they add seats to allow the viewpoints of all Michiganders to be representative. So Representative Sowerby, uh, explain to us what these two panels, the Advisory Council for Wolf Management and the Wildlife Commission, what do they do and uh, why do you think it's a good idea to add these new members?
2: So House Bill 5079 is the bill that I sponsored, which is the Michigan Wolf Advisory Commission. The other bill you're you're referring to is House Bill 5078, which is sponsored by Representative Abraham Ayash from Hamtramck. I'll first speak to 5079, which is the Michigan Wolf Advisory Commission. Uh, This is a commission that currently uh, consists of six members. Uh, These members are appointed by the director of the Department of Natural Resources. Um, And what my bill does is adds two members to that um, commission. Uh, It adds one seat that would be for organizations that promote primarily non-consumptive methods of conservation. And then the other member would be uh, someone who is a scientist, uh, with a zoological or other scientific background with at least uh, six years of expertise in the, that field of geology or wildlife management. And lastly, my bill will clarify that the tribal government member, which currently exists as one of those six current members, must be a representative from a Michigan tribe. Uh, the current uh, tribal member is from Wisconsin. <laughs> wow. Um, and then yeah which is uh uh you know rather concerning but uh so let's make <laughs> sure that these these members are all from Michigan and that need, that is clarified then in my bill. Uh 5078 which is Mr. Ayash's bill uh that is the uh uh, uh wildlife Michigan Wildlife Council um that will add Four members to an already nine member council and that would be two individuals with expertise in wildlife issues um, and uh, of those two they have to support conservation and enhancement wildlife also promote primarily non-consumptive wildlife use and then uh, I would add an individual from a tribal government from Michigan and then would also add an individual with a master's degree uh, in zoology or wildlife management with at least six years' experience, so putting that scientist on that uh, Michigan Wildlife Council as well, so moving it from nine members to 13 members.
0: Is the Wildlife Council or Commission also appointed by the DNR?
2: Uh, The Wildlife uh, Council is appointed by the governor.
0: By the governor. Okay. Well, yes. um, what do you think the chances are of these bills being taken up? I mean, you think you have a good chance to get at least part of what you're seeking passed? Uh,
2: I, I think what happens here with these bills is, is um, um, people have to understand it doesn't change the um, uh, outcome, the, the 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 voting that may occur on these uh Uh, uh, commissions and uh, councils, but rather it adds new voices uh, to an already existing body. Therefore, I think that there's a a good chance I'm going to be working hard uh, to get a hearing in natural resources committee uh, to uh, at least be able to explain to the members and the public the importance of adding more voices to uh, uh, these uh, councils and commissions.
0: The Wolf Management Advisory Council, is that the panel that makes any key recommendation about whether there should be a wolf hunt uh, in Michigan? They
2: they make recommendations to the Natural Resources Commission, the NRC, uh, so they answer directly uh, to them uh, and give uh, advisory uh, uh you know, reports and things of that sort to the NRC uh, annually, and that consists of, of, you know, what should be done uh, with managing uh, the wolf population and uh, make recommendations about a wolf hunt as
0: well. As you know, the uh, wolf hunt idea is very controversial, particularly, obviously, in the Upper Peninsula I think you've even got Senator McBroom, who's, I think, introduced a Bill, saying he thinks, I don't know whether it's the Wolf Management Council or what, but that somehow uh, any law talking about wolf hunts should be confined totally to the Upper Peninsula, (laughs) and the Lower Peninsula shouldn't have any role in it at all. Uh, I mean, where is this going? And there is such... uh, Confusion, I think, and uncertainty about the interplay between the federal government and the way they think wolves should be dealt with uh, as an endangered species, and what the state thinks. What do you think? What where is this going?
2: That's a great question, Mr. Ballinger. Uh, first of all, this legislation, which is House Bill five zero seven nine, dealing with the uh, uh, Wolf Management Advisory Council, is not intended to endorse any specific viewpoint on wolf hunting or on the best way to conserve and live beside our state's wildlife. It just simply um, puts into place that Michigan's boards and commissions should reflect the diversity of viewpoints Michiganders hold. As to Mr. uh, Senator McBroom's um, uh, bill, you know, we are one state. (laughs) Um, Yes, we are divided by the Straits of Mackinac, but, you know, we have a lot of um, uh, lower peninsula uh, tourists and uh, wildlife advocates going to the UP for all kinds of reasons, uh, from hunting to, uh, uh, you know, uh, enjoying the wildlife, uh, bird watching, all of that, um, and, and bringing a tremendous amount of economy. Uh, to the Upper Peninsula. But in the end, we are one state. We share our, uh, uh, you know, tax revenue. uh, We share legislation. We share all kinds of things as one state. And therefore, you know, no one geographical location should only include a specific portion of our state. Uh, In fact, um, the Wildlife uh, Council, specifically states that one of those members has to be from the upper peninsula i get that we shouldn't be you know uh, creating these geographical boundaries so uh, let's have unified voices uh, diverse voices but unified voices as we have these councils and commissions that you know uh, are looking at our wildlife in the best interest of our wildlife in the state
0: well i think it's a good idea, personally, uh, to have the viewpoints of wildlife scientists, conservationists, and Native American tribes on these two panels. Do you think if your bill went through exactly the way you introduced it, and Representative Iyashis does the same thing, that it would change the decision-making of these two panels, if that happened?
2: the Remember, the makeup of these are still appointments either by the governor for for the Wildlife Council or by the DNR director of the Wolf Management Advisory Council. This just specifically states that you're just adding these other voices to that board. It doesn't mean that um, you're not going to have um, uh, the uh, consumptive members, uh, uh, hunters, uh, 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 fishermen other voices on these, because that's specific in the language of this legislation, Um, you know, uh, as it goes forward. It doesn't change any of that. So, you know, conservation organizations, hunting and fishing organizations, um, uh, you know, animal advocacy organizations, agricultural interests are still part of the Wolf Management Council, just like the Wildlife Council has hunting and fishing persons and local business people impacted by hunting, all that. It's specifically stated, this is just adding a a few more and it isn't going to create a
0: You've done a great job of explaining these two bills which I think are very interesting and very important. Representative Bill Sowerby, Democrat of Clinton Township, representing the 31st House District for being our guest. Thank you Representative Sowerby.
2: Thank you, Mr. Ballinger, for the opportunity. Hope to talk
0: to you again soon. Well, hope so. We'll get it done, and we'll be back next week with still more.